Hello, this is Kevin Kelly for the next issue of the Cool Tools Show and Tell. And our guest this time is my good friend, Paul Sappho. Hey, Paul, would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners and viewers? Uh, sure. I'm a, I like to call myself a forecaster, but I'm doomed to be called a futurist. I've been here in Silicon Valley looking at technology and its impacts and futures for about three decades. So you might say I'm a futurist with a past who these <laughs> days is on the faculty at Stanford where I uh, teach long range forecasting. I like that. Okay. Futures with the past. Now, the thing about Paul that I've um, known for many years is that whenever I meet Paul, he has something really cool that I don't know about um, and that he's very enthusiastically sharing. And so, Paul, you always have great stuff. Tell me about something that's really cool that's one of your more favorite tools these days. Sure. But in the interest of disclosure, Every time I have something to show you, you always have something to show me. So it's it's a, it's an even trade. Um, you know, I was thinking about a couple of things and things that I actually really use. And one of my favorites is this little itsy bitsy tiny knife. It's called a a Boker stub, though they've changed the name to a DM one or something. You easily find it, and it's just the cutest little knife, and it's super practical. Um, it, up a little closer so we can see. Sure. Let's get that right up there. Yeah. All right. Look at that. Yeah. And uh, a couple of important details. It's a lock back so the blade doesn't close on you while you're working. And on the backside, it has a nice little clip uh, that will clip onto your pocket. And for anybody who wears uh, blue jeans, uh, it fits very nicely into that funny little watch pocket on the right pocket. Most people wonder what the hell that was. That pocket was put there in the 1880s for people's pocket watches. And sort of typical Silicon Valley style, nobody's worn a pocket watch in decades and they still keep the pocket there. This fits in nicely. And what I like about it is it's always with me. It does one thing really well, which is it cuts stuff. And so, you know, when I'm teaching at Stanford, I'm always having to like cut down a big roll of paper to stick on the wall. Super sharp, does the trick very nicely. And I don't look like Crocodile Dundee when I'm carrying a knife in my pocket. Or a nerd like me with my plastic box cutter. So, well, you know, I mean, box, you know, box, box cutters are great, but, uh, um, and, and this is kind of like a box cutter in the sense that these are about 35 bucks. Uh -huh. So, you know, if you lose it, it's a little bit of an ouch, but it's not like, you're losing the family heirloom that your granddaddy gave you when you were five years old. And so and I always, I have, uh, I bought a typical habit of me when I find something I like, I buy a bunch and I give them to friends. And so you can get them in different colors and all oh, sorts of stuff. Oh, I see. Can I see you close one of those to see, um, because sure. that's one of my fears of these things is. Um, Pops up like that. Right. And then the side, side catches. Yeah right up there and all you do is that and it closes okay. all right couldn't be easier and uh super safe um and because the blade so the blade's short but but very broad so when you're working with it there's no way it's going to wobble it feels like a big knife yeah and it looks like it's as sharp as a big knife would be too 
Oh, yeah. Well, this uh, Booker is, I believe, the oldest knife maker on the planet. They're, you know, one of the classic uh, German Mittelstand companies that that does extraordinary uh, stuff. And so the, the frame in it is titanium. Our friend Stuart would appreciate that. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so it ages nicely. Um, it's uh, easy to sharpen. And and it actually I have hardly ever had to sharpen. It stays super sharp. Right, right. Yeah. And and I know from carrying a box cutter in my pocket all the time, that even though I work at a desk doing, you know, a sit down job, it's incredible how many times a day when I need to cut something, particularly in the right. era of Amazon. It's just like I'm using one of this all the time. So so um, this is not just for people who are having an outdoor um, job. This is this is perfect for people with a sit down job. Yeah, no, well, and for me, you know, teaching teaching class, you know, when I'm at Stanford, I got students and I got a cut down of, yeah. you know, a 40 inch roll of paper and, you know, try doing that with scissors. Yeah, um, this is super sharp, super fast. And um, yeah, it's definitely kind of an urban thing. You could use it in the wilderness, too, of course. Yeah. Um, but uh, but above all, the other thing I really like is you don't notice it in your pocket. You know, and. And and a knife, if you can have a knife, you gotta have it with you all the time. Cause inevitably the one time you don't have it is when you need to cut something. And I, you know, I find if I'm in the kitchen doing something like, you know, trying to break the seal on a plastic shrink wrap on a bottle of salsa or something, you know, it's easier just reach in my pocket, grab this, and yeah. And best of all, you know, it gives you use for that fun little pocket on your yeah. Levi's if you wear Levi's. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, and that's another reason to have multiple ones is you want to have one in each of your pants or your coat or whatever. Um, well, and the other thing, you get multiple ones because what I found is every time I have it out, some friend goes, that's really cool. I right. say, here, you take this one. I got another one at home. I don't suppose it would pass TSA. Uh, I have never tried. I, I'm My philosophy on airport security is to pass through like smoke and make sure I have absolutely nothing that would even be even remotely interesting to them. Yes. I was coming back from Seattle just last week and the TSA guy started with me. He says, do you have any snacks? I was like, and you said, are you hungry? Yeah. I was like, what do you, what do you want? <laughs> and uh, I happened to have a bag of trail mix and he, took it out and put it in the tray. And I, you know, it's like, okay, I haven't heard that one before. Yeah. Uh, oh God. Yeah. No, it's. <laughs> um, so, well, that's a great one. So, so, so the name of that again is the, the um, Boker. Boker, B-O-K-E-R with an umlaut over the M one. And um, I think, as I apologize, it's the Boker plus DW1 now. DW1, okay. But everybody knows it is the Boker stub because it's a little tiny stub of a knife. Yeah, yeah. You know, this um, is useless. You know, if you have, if you're trying to compensate for male impotence, yeah. this would be really useless. You don't want to get into a knife fight with this. Well, and your biker friends will just laugh you out of the bar. <laughs> but if you're a knowledge worker like us, hey. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, that's a great one, Paul. That's really fantastic. Um, so what's another of your favorite cool tools? Sure. And I'm, you know, I've consciously picked things I really, really actually use every day. So, um, and it's the cover 
Um, this is a cover on a Moleskine. And I realize it doesn't look like much because it's just a cover. You can see where it fits in there. And most importantly, in the back, it has this so you can actually use the uh, elastic on the Moleskine. The background on this is way back in 2009. And I was starting to use more Moleskines for my journals. And what I found is Moleskines were great, but the spine was a little bit um, uh, cheesy. And by the time you finished filling a Moleskine, the spine was all junked up and didn't look very good. And so, you know, like you, I mean, you know, so here's, here's a random old journal and I want to put the date on the back. And I like the spine to be in good shape, uh -huh. so I put the date on the back. So um, I looked around and, um, well, let me, I'll save the story. Where you get these is from a, a company called Gefeller Casemakers. G-F-E-L-L-E-R, and it's it's run by a guy named Steve Derricott these days, and they're up in Idaho, and um, and they make they spe actually specialize in uh, field gear for scientists or geologists and biologists, so belt leather belt cases to carry your notebook and pens and stuff, and it's a real fixture. Of, of of field work. When I was an undergraduate, I had one of the cases. And so I called them up and I said, would you make a case for me custom? And they thought it was a little peculiar, but they're nice people. And so they made it. And now it's a standard in their catalog. And what I love best about it is that the, the origins of Giffeller, Roy Giffeller was a cowboy saddle maker. And he got into the science stuff in the 1950s when all the geologists were coming up into the year the, you know, look for uranium and the overthrust belt and stuff. And so they have just absolutely impeccable detail in the craftsmanship. And they bring in a special leather from, from England. And when you first get it, this is, this is uh, a case oh. that I've actually never used. So contrast the colors. Oh, wow. This is how it comes. And this is what it looks like. This has literally been with me every single day since 2009 and and it just gets you know more and more lovely and coloring like i was actually writing it yeah. and then when you're done it just the the moleskine slips out take the moleskine it's now nice and clean put it on my shelf and slip this onto the new one so behind you it looks like there's several shelves of these notebooks is that right uh, that would be correct. So you in in picture. So let's see here. I yeah. never quite get this right. So yeah. that's they start way back there, and uh, and then I switch to this style, and then just out of camera below is a whole other shelf of Moleskines. And uh, you know, I'll, I'll never match our, our pal Stuart. Yeah. But uh, when I was in college doing field work, we were required to keep field journals, and the habit started then. And and I have continued it ever since. How, just parenthetically, um, how long does it take you to go through one volume or to fill up one? Well, this is volume 104, and it was right. from December 2008 to March 2009. So that's about half a year. Yeah, it's about six months. You know, it's a little slower during COVID. You know, you, you discover all sorts of quirks, like I'll take notes when I'm listening to a live lecture but I don't take notes in my journal when I'm listening to a recorded lecture. I don't know why. Um, and, you know, I catch down comments and meetings and stuff. And um, one, I mean, if you want to know more about how I do journals, I 
tell you real fast. Well, yes. One of the questions I have immediately is how often do you go back and review or look at, and do you have a method for retrieving things? I do. I do. Uh, my rule is uh, put everything in chronological order. So, uh, well, to pick this random journal that in the front, I have an index. So what I do during boring meetings when I'm trying to look attentive is I'm actually filling in um, my, my index up front. And then for every single page, what I do, oh, this is interesting. So occasionally I fill stuff in. I, if there's a sequence, so this is page two in a longer sequence, but I number all the pages and every page has a number and a date on it. And, um, and what that does, then if I need to put it into a file, I scan it or photocopy and put it in a file. But, you know, our friend Doug Engelbart talked me a long time ago that the most efficient way to index is to allow associative memory to work, mm -hmm. which means default is chronological because then I could say, like I had a question, someone came up and asked me the other day, uh, and I said, well, there's a book you need to read by Elliot Jakes, uh, General Theory of Bureaucracy, not the most exciting title. I said, but I, I, can, um, I, can, I can also get you some notes. I, a friend of mine who did a lot of work with him, I took about 20 pages of notes over a lunch once, and that lunch was in 1986. And I was able to go, he says, oh, well, I was working at Tapas Hand Hill, since Sundak, um, it was probably around somewhere in the fall, and I was able to go here and open that journal, which I had not opened in a decade, in less than five minutes. And then I also keep a paper calendar. Very old, so I've got five electronic calendars, but I have a paper calendar too. And I put notes in that. And so if I need to find something, I can go at the month of the glance here, mm -hmm. go to here. And then if I scan or put uh, a, a page of this in somewhere. Then when I'm looking at it on the scan, I go, oh, okay. That was, for example, let's see. Oh, well, here's one I just opened up to randomly was a conversation with Larry Brilliant. And it was April 3rd, 2009. And, um, and if I had put this into my file, I go, well, I wonder who else I ran into at that meeting and I could pull it up. I'm sure you and Larry were talking about the coming pandemic. <laughs> well, I mean, you've been in those meetings. Uh, I'm sure about it. Uh, in November 2019, I came home to my spouse and I said, it's really exciting news. And she said, what's up? And I said, well, uh, you know, that pandemic that everybody, you know, GBN and Larry Brilliant and all of us have been talking about for a decade or more, you know, Lori Garrett and stuff. A, a friend just told me it looks like it's arrived and there's something <laughs> loose in China and it's a good chance it'll turn into a global pandemic. It's fabulous news. And she goes, what? And I said, well, you know, my winter quarter cat class, Foresight for Innovators, even though they're engineers and Stanford students, I have to remind them of exponential math. And, you know, since Raymond Pearl is not alive to, to do a demo with fruit flies, well, you know, what could be a better exponential example than, um, than a global pandemic? So, you know, you're right. I, I, you know, you, you like me are white and male and, 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 and heading towards being an elder. And what makes me laugh is all the people who were going around saying, oh, I predicted this. It's like, well, 
get in line yes. with the possible exception of climate change. <laughs> this was the most predicted. Yeah, I mean, how many, I mean, I can't even remember how many scenarios I was in where there was a global pandemic. Everybody went through the whole thing. Right. It was like, and people were saying, we never thought about this. It was like, what? Everybody thought about it. Well, but as a as a, a fellow futurist, you know, the one part that probably would have been the wildest of wild cards would be that we had a, a head of state who was determined to do nothing. Or or the, the whole anti-vax thing. Right. I, I did not see that coming. Well, the anti-vax was in the wind, but the idea that someone would suppress anyway. We, yeah, we should stick with gizmos and things. So anyway, Rockefeller. The other thing about this is, um, just be careful when you order anything from Gefeller, because, like you, Kevin, you will absolutely love his geologist field cases, yes. um, which, unless you're out cracking rocks, are absolutely useless, but they're so pretty. <laughs> yeah, I love how the, it acquires this patina of um, oils from your hand and everything else. It's just really gorgeous. Um, and what's amazing about it is, you know, this thing is, you know, it's stitched along the edges there. Yeah. And this is what a true craftsman does. The stitching still holds up a decade and a half later. Yeah. I don't know how he does it. And I'm sure if if you with loose, you could send it back to them and they would probably repair it. Uh, they absolutely would. Yeah. So, um, but just in full disclosures, what are you thinking that might go for these days? Cost. Uh, I haven't checked lately. They're, they've gotten more expensive. And, you know, and I worked on the design and stuff. Uh, yeah. And that's what's unique. I don't get a commission, but he is a good friend. I think they're probably about 70 bucks. Yeah. Okay. So think of it as the cost of three Moleskines. Right. But, right. Um, you know, the, you're going to leave it for your grandchildren. Right. Right. Well, that's a great one, Paul. Thank you for that. So um, how about number three? What do we have for number three? Uh, well, again, in the spirit of something I carry all the time, I pulled up. Here's my particular one: is it's it's a climber's chalk bag. Uh, my climbing days are long behind me. Um, I still, as you know, go out in the wilderness a lot, but I use this every day because it's um, can't say it. it's yeah. got my dog treats and and. Uh, and you, have a, bags. And you have a dog, just just to be clear. Yes, I have a dog, and she demands to be walked at least twice a day, and uh, and it just slips on my belt and stuff. But so that's I I truly use it every day. But um, whenever I go hiking, uh, and then as you know, I I uh, am involved in search and rescue. I just always have one on my belt because it's a perfect place. Like if you're fiddling with a camera lens or you got your phone and water, it's it's kind of a little temporary office on your belt. And I don't have a specific one to recommend because there are a ton of them. You know, this, this, this I forget what company this was, uh, maybe Chenard. Uh, here's a nice colorful one. Uh -huh. If you go to REI, there's a whole, you know, because lots of climbers, uh, lots of different belt bags, and they're like 15 bucks, and uh -huh. it gives you a chance. How many people do you know they will buy a carabiner because it looks really pretty, but they don't climb. They have no use for the carabiner, sure. but they have it on their pack because they kind of like the carabiner. Well, that's what you use to attach to your belt. Like this one, which I, I mean, you know, I must have, you know, a dozen of these bags I've collected over the years. The little carabiner goes here, it goes on your belt. And, oh, and this one is interesting because 
since it's designed to be a chalk bag for climbers, this one has sheepskin on the inside. Uh -huh. So if you want cushy sheepskin, you can get that. If you want it without cushy sheepskin, um, they just have these. And all of them have a closer at the top, so you're not going to drop anything. But I just find it's just the most useful thing. It's, you know, sticking stuff in your pockets when you're hiking doesn't work. And it's a perfect place to just temporarily put stuff, a camera or a smartphone or a bottle of water while you're working with it, or a notepad or, or the like. And, you know, I'm showing my age here, but you remember um, the, the book, The Complete Hiker? Yes. Oh, you know, Colin Fletcher. Colin Fletcher. And in the days, you know, and I was a young pup and we sewed our own hiking gear. And he had what he called a backpacker's pocket that he put onto the strap of his backpack that he made. This, to me, is a much more practical backpacker's pocket. But you could also attach it to the strap of your backpack if you wanted to. Uh, or on the, I would put it on the belt. These, even this is a little big. You could do it, but there are all sorts of specialty uh, backpacker pockets that you can put on your pocket uh -huh. too. Yeah, so. that's really great. So a chalker's bag. And yeah, it's a, if you search chalk bag at REI, uh -huh. you'll get it. And like I said, you can go for the, you know, sleek dark black ones or. Uh, what's the company that's na uh, named after somewhere in the Andes? Um, uh, Patagonia. Not Patagonia. Um, it's uh, like Putumayo or something. Anyway, they have these yeah. really colorful ones and the like. Okay. Well, again, thank you. Good. So, Paul, those are three great ones. Um, I'm sure you're not going to disappoint with us for the fourth one. Um, tell us about what that is. So, well, it was, uh, you asked the question about um, uh, first aid kit. First aid kits. And and so I'm a wilderness EMT. And I, uh, and, and also have, you know, taught first aid in the pack in the past. And think it was a really interesting question. What would you carry as an essential first aid kit? The shortest answer of all is get training. Uh, what you carry in your head is more important than what you carry on your person. So it's very much a MacGyver thing. So principles I follow say, first of all, consider what your first aid needs are. You know, if you're going to Everest, you need an expedition kit. And, um, you know, and you want to talk to your doc about getting some extra meds in it and all that. But if you're not going to Everest, it's like if you're just, um, you know, uh, if you're a bicyclist, you probably need a road rash kit. Um, you know, some stuff for blisters and the like, or your hiker. So think about what, where you'll actually use it and, and then what your level of training is. You know, you don't want to carry a stethoscope if you're not, uh, you know, not a paramedic or whatever, because you want a MacGyver, you want it to be small and sort of like the knife, it want to have it all at arm, always at arm's reach. So with that in mind, I was thinking, well, uh, and I and I will talk about specific to get trained. My advice, my favorite place for training is Knowles. So Knowles.org, National Outdoor Leadership School, and get a wilderness first aid class. That's a short one. Slightly longer is what's called wilderness first responder. Um, and the reason why I put the emphasis on wilderness is not that everybody's going to go hiking in the wilderness. Is the wilderness is defined as anywhere that is more than one hour away from definitive treatment. 
So noting where you and I live, that means that when the next earthquake hits, we will instantly be in the wilderness. Hmm. And so that you're going to learn more skills from them than from the more typical first aid trainings. I won't mention the companies. The other nice thing about Knowles is they do all their first aid training because they lead uh, trips around the world and all their guides take their own classes. So you get people teaching the class who have done this extensively. And then, and, and, and this is like an in-person yeah. um, where you sign up, you find a local Knowles and you sign up for, and how long is the course? Is it like a, a day? Or? Yeah, I mean, a wilderness first aid class, I think is like a day and a half. The wilderness first responder is five days. Um, and the essence, the, the, the real secret about uh, emergency response. So like for me as a nationally certified wilderness EMT, and I was on a search and rescue team and stuff, it's most people say, oh, I got to do something. What, what really the most important skill in an emergency, medical emergency, is assessment. And most people freeze, you know, there's someone hurt and they go, oh, I don't want to touch them. And it's like what the class is all about is hands-on experience, assessment, 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 and treatment. Um, and, and so, again, the kit you carry in your head is much more important. So that said, um, well, I was thinking about a minimalist kit uh, that, you know, if I, if I, you know, if I'm a bicyclist, I have a road rash kit, you know, because road rash is really minor, but boy, does it hurt. What would be in a road rash kit? Just, just as an example. Oh, you know, I would carry, I mean, if I had a default, this is like the simplest default kit. Now I've made my own and, but my advice is, you know, start by thinking about buying a standard kit somewhere. Um, but just be careful that they don't put a bunch of junk in it. You don't need. So this is like a, a really easy default kit. It's got some gauze, some, some four by fours and a couple of band-aids. And, and I would keep uh, a piece, uh, you know, a roller with it. That'll pretty much cover anything. A roller? Um, what, what, what do you mean a roller? Uh, what's called Curlix. Uh, let's see here. So a nice little conforming four-inch stretch gauze, and it's prepackaged. And nice. you go to a place like REI. So, like, you know, if you throw this into this, you've, uh, you've pretty much got a first aid kit. Okay. Doesn't take a space. The next step up, the one thing I would consider, given how dark these times are, is a uh, 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 what's called a stop the bleed kit. This is if you end up in a, have the bad fortune of being in a mass casualty instant, incident, somebody shooting people and the like, um, then you want to carry a tourniquet and a pressure bandage. So these, this is, I forget whose this is. Uh, it's got a hemostatic agent in it that it helps clot and, and you put in hold pressure. Um, there are various versions of this. So you can see it's all nicely sealed up because hopefully you never have to use this. Right. Now, the place I would the, go the, to- The second one is called a pressure, would you call it a pressure what? It's uh, a trauma wound dressing, okay. four inch, uh, hemostatic control bandage. Okay. And it's a specialty thing for very serious bleeds. And it does two things. It applies direct pressure, uh, but it also has a hemostatic control that causes uh, blood to clot and stop. 
There are all sorts of ways to do this. And the these are the classic tourniquets that uh, you see it's got a little windlass on it and the like. This is where training is absolutely essential. If you have one of these in your bag, you might be able to improvise, but I don't recommend that. The What I would search is uh, a site, it's uh, stopthebleed.org, one word, stopthebleed.org. They have online training and it's just focused very simply on, you know, what happens if you're in a situation where somebody's having a serious bleed out and how do you use the tourniquet and how to use the hemostatic bandage. Uh, they have pure online training. They sell it and it's a nonprofit. They sell a kit for $35 that I've seen, I don't have one because I must have a dozen different first aid kits and I didn't need to get it. Mm -hmm. But what I liked about their kit uh, when I saw it is it's all shrink wrapped in a spot. You can toss it in your car or wherever. Uh, some people it's, it's depressing to consider that it's small enough. They have the kids carry one in their backpack to school. Wow. Um, yeah. I mean, these are dark times. So I, what I like about stop the bleed is they are, it, they're focused on one specific skill. The online class doesn't take long. There are in-person classes being done in communities around the country. So you, an in-person class, you actually have an experience of applying it to a, a mannequin and seeing how it works. And, and, and also it has the, um, uh, the side effect that, um, you know, all these things is about muscle memory and and also getting over the shock of seeing things and you know once you've seen a serious bleed out a couple of times and you get used to it it's no big deal but the first time somebody sees a lot of blood uh you know they're gonna kind of freeze up but if you've gone through a training you know it's just a couple hours and they show how to simulate all that then you're gonna do much better that is a fabulous fabulous cool tool thank you that was really 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 great I like the idea of taking the online course as a kind of a bare minimum. Um, and well, was, and to, just to summarize it, think about where you're going to be and what you need. Like if you have small kids, boy, you know, I put little Ziplocs with Band-Aids all over the house um, and think about what you might run into um, and then say, okay, do I have the level of training to do the anticipated? And then say, well, how do I build a kit that, that fits that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really great. Um, yeah, I mean, and it is first aid, so you, you do want to have it very accessible. Like, I've been changing over the first aid kit in my workshop, which wasn't a zippered bag. Like, no, I don't want it in a zippered bag. I want it sitting on a shelf so I can grab it with one hand. Yeah. Oh, and the one other detail I forgot is uh, the phrase PPE, personal protective equipment that uh, you wanna make sure with your kit that you have some gloves. So this is some prepackaged, you know, my, Microflex gloves and a mask. And the old, as the saying goes, no gloves, no goggles, no service. The important thing about this is it like, it, you know, in search and rescue, rule one is don't become a victim. Nothing screws up a rescue worse than a rescuer becoming a victim. And so you wanna make sure that you are safe. You know, there's, don't be a hero. 
You don't go into something if it's not safe. And if you go in, make sure you protect yourself first, you know, with a mask and gloves if it's someone you don't know. Mm -hmm. Okay, well put. So um, that's really great, Paul. Thanks. Four fantastic, cool tools, stuff I didn't know about. And um, can you, we have a couple minutes. Do you want to share anything that you're working on or um, a project that you um, think people should know about? Uh, well, I mean, it's it's that time of year where I'm planning my, my classes for uh, the next academic year. And so the main class that I teach is um, in the engineering school of Stanford, ME 297, Foresight for Innovators. And what we do in the class is it teaches forecasting methods and then applies them to a particular problem. And then the students take it out to uh, identifying a potential climate, uh, excuse me, identifying a potential client with a problem and proposing either a product or a solution or a plan. And I'm um, try to pick a topic every year that is is going to pop. And this year, it's uh, going to be the California mega drought. And say, what? Let's let's look broadly at this. We have a whole bunch of forecasts on the science side, but apropos of what happened with the pandemic, the impact forecast of of what it's going to do and how it's going to affect people is going to be full of surprises. So I'm going to push the students to really look into those possibilities and come up with solutions. And they could be, you know, very big solutions all, or all the way down to personal things. So that's always fun. And, you know, what I love about teaching is it forces me to constantly question all of my assumptions about foresight and foresight methods. And, and so I'm already discovering coming out of it that I, this year's, um, this, this year's evolution of the class is making me toss out a whole bunch of forecasting stuff that I've done in the past. I'm so intrigued. Just give me one example of something you're tossing out. Uh, oh, oh, uh, I'm, 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 I'm really souring on scenarios. Oh. And I mean, they have their place. Um, you know, the, the problem to me in foresight is you have all sorts of people talk about methods and it always reminds me of you know churchill after he died they found written in the margins of one of his speeches speech week here use latin and shout <laughs> and and so someone said well we have this method well you know methods are just heuristics it's it's um we we can have a longer conversation about this but as as you know i'm also a, a man tracking instructor so i'm a i'm a level level two man tracker and so and 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 the analog of of tracking someone across terrain uh, or looking for a lost person has a backwash into my day job of of forecasting. And what it is is there is no magic to forecasting. You have a set of tools, and the trick is don't get attached to your tools. Mm -hmm. And if the tool's useful, use it. And when the moment the tool ceases to be useful, throw it away and go the next way. And I have also gotten so heartily tired of, I'll stop ranting, but not just yet. You know, what is it about people who feel compelled to write books uh, telling us how to look into the future? I find them pointless and sterile and absolutely useless. 
Mm -hmm. um, and so what I've been spending a lot of my time this summer is going back into the deep history of foresight and reading a whole bunch of stuff that uh, that nobody has bothered to read in decades and often didn't read to begin with because it was impenetrable. And are you finding anything useful in those old things? If oh, yeah. No, it's it's turned me 180 degrees around on how I approach foresight. Hmm. Um, and I'm, you know, most fundamentally, we, we, we dance around the question of why is it the people are interested in the future to begin with? Mm -hmm. And why do people find forecasts interesting, helpful, useful, pay money for them, even when most of the time they're completely wrong? Mm -hmm. And there's an answer, but it's a longer answer than we can do in this video. Yeah. Well, Paul, this has really been great. Thank you. Um, we'll list where people can find you if they want to bother sure. you, harass you, stalk you. Good. <laughs> and I look look forward to the next time I see you because I uh, can't wait to see what interesting new thing you've come up with. Yes, that yes. I'm going to have to get. Right. Well, thank you again. This has really been fabulous. It's been a long time, and um, I always enjoy um, hearing what you're interested in just in general, as I said, even just the foresight stuff. So thank you again for joining us. Um, until next week, thank you, everyone else there who are viewers. Um, this is the end of the show and tell. Thank you. We're glad that you enjoyed this issue of the Cool Tools Show and Tell. Just want to remind you that we have some other coolish material on our YouTube channel here. Please subscribe, comment, like. In addition, um, this Cool Tools Show and Tell is also available in an Audible podcast form. You can subscribe to it wherever you subscribe to other podcasts if you just wanted to listen. And if you're listening, know that there is a visual version of this on our YouTube channel where we're actually showing the tools and um, there's a little bit more of a visual component there. In addition, the same folks that put us, uh, the Cool Tools website out, we also put out a free newsletter every week. It's very, very short. It's one page or less. We recommend six very brief items um, that are very succinct, easy to read. You can deal with it in a couple minutes. And every week we bring to you the six cool things that we have uncovered and want to share. And it's called Recommendo with one M, recommendo.com. You'll be able to find it there. It's free. Join 50,000 plus other subscribers every Sunday morning. You'll get it in your email box. And it's actually one of the most popular things that we produce. But we do produce other newsletters as well. One of them is called What's in Your Bag. We have one that goes out to um, tools and tips for your workshop. So you can get those at our website um, and they're also free. And finally, um, I wanna mention the fact that um, we do have a Patreon and um, this uh, podcast and this vidcast are supported by Patreon supporters. The minimum is a dollar a month. And for that, you get um, an email to ask us anything. We'll respond and um, answer your question if we're able to. There are other higher levels. You can all see those at our Patreon page. And all those links are below right here. So thank you again for being a fan. And um, we'll keep producing stuff if you enjoy it. Thanks. We are grateful for all our Patreon supporters. And this week's include Randy Fisher, Bob K, 
Hans Reisbeck, Michael Douglas, Andrew Nepley, Chris Wurstuke, Dan O'Brien, Michael Jones, Chris Whalen, and Pamela Cooley. We give thanks to each of you and appreciate your support. Thank you. Thank you.